Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I am joined, as always, by TLS commissioning editor, northern culture guru, and surprisingly knowledgeable about beer, Thea Lenadetsi. I can't open my emails, Thea, without you sending one <laughs> seemingly about beer. This isn't true. This really isn't true. Okay, we'll, <laughs> we'll come back to that later. I'm glad, I'm glad that we'll, we'll, we will return to that. Each week, we'll be coming to you to discuss major pieces from this week's TLS on big ideas or authors. Coming up on the show this week. We will be talking Olympics, or rather the country in which the Olympics is being held. Brazil, a place of warm and generous people, but also of institutionalised corruption and a failing economy. Patrick Wilkin will be joining us from Rio State to discuss his cover piece on this timely subject. From Brazil to Bloomsbury, Francesca Wade has written a charming essay on what home interiors can tell us about the Bloomsbury set. We will be speaking to her, and TLS fiction editor Toby Lichtig will pop in to discuss Jeff Dyer, the slacker auteur and darling of letters. Finally, we shall close with Rachel Hadass reading her poem, taken from this week's edition of the TLS, called Raw Jute. To Rio, then. This week we have seen much to admire about the Olympic Games, the discipline, the commitment and the joy of athletes performing at their peak. When I find myself shouting at the television in support of women's weightlifters or synchronised divers, it is clear that the event retains a rather magical capacity to captivate. But what of the city and nation that provides the backdrop for this event? Well, Patrick Wilkin has reviewed three books for the TLS that take as their subject the state of modern Brazil. Brazilianaires by Alex Quadros, New Order and Progress, edited by Ben Ross Schneider and Rio de Janeiro Extreme City by Luiz Eduardo Soares. He doesn't paint a positive or pretty picture of the country as a result. It is in the grip of economic crisis following 10 consecutive quarters of recession or near zero growth political upheaval following a scandal that might lead to the impeachment of its former president and social unrest. He joins Thea and me from Rio State now. Patrick, you refer to something in the piece uh, called the Operation Car Wash scandal at the heart of the Brazilian establishment, which led to the removal of the president and could lead to her impeachment. It's quite a striking name. Can you tell us a bit more about that? 
Yeah, well, Operation Car Wash is one of many of the scandals that has rocked the political establishment in Brazil over years. But I think it's significant for its sheer um, size and the scale and scope of it. It basically involves the payment of uh, campaign funds and bribes in exchange for contracts of the, the big contractors, including Odebrecht and also Petrobras, which is the massive um, national oil, largely state-owned company. And it has ensnared the entire Brazilian elite. And through a system of plea bargaining, uh, the elite has turned on on each other and uh, the revelations are coming apace. And most of the top politicians, uh, the former head of the Congress, the Chamber of Deputies uh, and the head of the Senate, former President Lula and many others have been ensnared uh, in this huge scandal that threatens, as you say, to bring down Dilma. There has just been a vote in the Senate to proceed with impeachment process and it's not looking good for Dilma. I think she will be impeached uh, a few days after the end of the Olympic Games. You also talk about the economy. And 10 years ago, Brazil was in good shape financially, and it, and it wasn't massively damaged by the financial crisis of 2008. But it's now, it's not been growing. It has been in recession for 10 quarters. How did we get to there? How, how, how did the economy of Brazil collapse? I think it was a combination of factors. The the big boom during the Lula years was fueled by a the, the commodities boom, Brazil being a major exporter of soya and iron ore to China, really benefited from the rising prices. There was also the oil fines off the coasts of Rio and Espirito Santo states that promised uh, huge revenues. But of course, as the commodities prices faltered, Brazil found itself in a hole. And I think um, it's fair to say that it was not helped by the Dilma administration that tried many different contrasting policies, tightening and then loosening the kind of fiscal levers. And during the course of last year, uh, the, common, the economy really tanked. And I think that was the propulsion amongst many other factors, including the Lavajato corruption scandal, that really united the political forces uh, against Dilma and enforced the impeachment, which has been hugely controversial and really is more on a technicality than uh, in terms of you know, outright corruption that would be the normal grounds for impeaching a, a president. But that appears to be coming to fruition and very shortly I think Dilma will be forced out. I think, I think it's the ab- abruptness of the, the shift that we're talking about here from this towering success story, you know, the, the bee in, in brick, to this narrative of failure that is what's so compelling about all of this. I mean, it becomes clear that in all of these problems, that they've been there from the very beginning, so they were there in the boom as well as the bust. And indeed, I'm sure when we talk about corruption, that was happening during the bust as well. And was, I mean, sorry, during the boom as well. And that was presumably very much a part of how it got to that place. But there's a, there's a passage in your piece where you say, in the end, one gets the impression that corruption is not so much a part of the system as its very essence, the common currency of business and politics accepted and understood by all. And I can't help but draw these, I mean, I think they're unavoidable parallels here with, uh, with Italy. I mean, the Brazilian Olympic thing, it's very much sort of like Faulty Towers meets Gomorra on on acid. I mean, you're faced with that vertiginous question of, of where do you start if, if corruption is so endemic 
to the system. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I think Brazil has often been compared to Italy and it is a sort of uh, turbocharged Mediterranean system of corruption that we're talking about that goes way back and, you know, many people would say goes back into colonial times uh, and is part of the whole Brazilian system. It was very evident during the military dictatorship years from 64 to 85 and became entrenched in the 90s even as Brazil began to normalise in other senses and uh, democracy became entrenched. And I think one of the books that I reviewed by Luis Eduardo Suarez was very interesting in this respect in that, you know, corruption is often something that happens off stage. It's very difficult to find out what's going on. There's a murkiness to Brazilian politics at, at all levels. But um, Suarez is an interesting figure, a famous writer here who who wrote um, Tropa de Leach that became a blockbusting film. Um, but he also served in many capacities in municipal, state and federal administrations, not very successfully as it turned out. And so he had a sort of insider's view of exactly how the system worked. And I think what's telling is that even before Lula took power in the run-up to the election, there were discussions around illegal campaign finance and the Suarez tells an interesting anecdote of being approached by someone who wants, in exchange for a couple of posts, key posts, to siphon off public funds in order to finance uh, state and federal PT campaigns. And that's, that's before Lula took power. And then in Lula's first administration, that ended in the crisis of the, the Mensalon, which was a, a huge corruption scandal in, in the mid-2000s, around 2005, which almost brought down the government, but Lula managed to survive that one. We, we see that, in general, it is inbuilt into a system where, a bit like Italy, you have this fragmented parliament, and the only way to rule is to string together coalitions and that's been the huge tragedy and downfall of the PT that it's gone into coalition with some very dodgy uh, operators um, and ended up having to pay in order to pass legislation. Now how much anger is there Patrick about this because is this a bit like Italy is a good example of where people just almost shrug their shoulders and say this is the way the world has always been but when you look at the state of say Rio where they have problems with sewage and pollution and they have problems with favelas and they have a problem presumably of a massive rich poor divide is there anger that the system is not serving people i think there's huge anger and it's directed not just against the pt but across the the whole political system and we've seen that in rolling demonstrations that have rocked brazil that have mobilized both the the left and the right i think what has changed is that, uh, and this is something that, that Alex Quadros points out in his book, is that in the good times, uh, people don't care so much. I mean, it, it has been very clear that the, the upper echelons of the political system has been endemically corrupt for decades. But as long as they could deliver some kind of growth, uh, jobs growth, increase in minimum wage and so forth, and the economy was stable, secure and, and booming, people didn't care so much. But as the economy started on its downward passage with unemployment rising and, as you say, massive problems. I mean, in, in Rio State, they can't even afford to pay, you know, basic 
public servants and, and people are receiving pensions in instalments. The whole system is close to collapse. At the moment, there's a process ongoing in Congress to renegotiate um, billions and billions of pounds worth of state debt that has built up through this whole crisis. So the country is on its knees. And while there are many causes, well, you know, one uh, essential problem is mismanagement uh, and, and corruption on a massive scale. Yes, there's, there's real anger uh, uh, on the streets. We obviously have the Olympics in, in Rio at the moment. What face do you think it's showing to the world versus the reality? Are we seeing... I mean, is the Olympics actually a sort of a cosmetic thing where people get very excited about the Olympics and then ignore the problems beneath it? Or do you think people will, over the course of the Olympics, start to see some of the, the, the cracks in the facade? Well, I think in Brazil there is kind of ongoing protests uh, on a relatively small scale but as the opening ceremony got underway there were protests along Copacabana Beach there was another small protest nucleus as close as they could get to the Maracana Stadium that was was put down by tear gas and pepper spray and so forth there's also been an interesting case of uh, a kind of legal dispute around what sort of protests can take place within the stadia and there have been people who have been unfurling banners against the current interim president uh, Teme within the stadium and the, uh, originally the Olympic Committee tried to ban all political expression with, inside events. Sounds faintly of Beijing really. <laughs> Yes, exactly. But a, um, a, there was a, a court decision which ruled in favour of you know, freedom of expression and so forth. Um, so that, 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 that's not being, that, that those are being permitted. So there is a lot of protest and also indifference. And I, I saw some graffiti around the various um, event sites, mainly directed at Temer. Uh, who's the interim president, who is also incredibly unpopular and also um, <laughs> uh, has some corruption charges over overhanging him and his his party. So there's a huge, I think, looming problem in Brazil because once the impeachment goes ahead, which is expected to the end of August, then what? All the political parties are unpopular. I was reading polls here yesterday which show that 75% percent um, of Brazilian voters did not support any political party, not the PT, not the PMDB that's currently in power, or the PSDB that, that uh, is uh, the, the traditional opposition. So Brazil faces not just an economic but a political crisis and it's very difficult to see how the, the elections in 2018, if, if Temer survives that long, will play out. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for writing this piece because, of course, when the Olympic Games is on, it's really in everyone's interest to pretend that the host country is wonderful because everyone has a stake in the game. The broadcasters who are broadcasting from there want to show off their coverage. The journalists who are out there want to, to write about the sports and you actually very seldom hear an honest reflection of what what the nation is going through. And I think uh, your piece in talking to you now is a, a really important thing to do. So thank you very much for that. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you. Extraordinary. Um, are you getting into the Olympics? I'm not. I find I find it very hard to be moved by the Olympics, um, I must say. I think it's it's sort of doubly tragic when, when you look at a country like, like Brazil, sort of struggling to put them on and the, the extreme costs to, to its people. I wonder, I wonder to what extent... It's an opportunity for people to, you know, the 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 eye of the the eyes of the global media are, are on Brazil now, and I wonder to what extent it's an opportunity for the people to show 
all of the smoke and mirrors that have been at work yeah. for so long. And It's an extraordinary thing. I mean, Athens, which again is another part of the world that can't afford the Olympics. Well, I mean, that's the classic case of, of the bad that the Olympics can do. I mean, when's the last time we had a Barcelona or an LA? I suppose London was good, but the infrastructure was oh. mostly in place. So There's Tokyo next, which probably yeah. will be able to. But there's a, we've got another piece in the TLS, which is about the Olympics and how it has a negligible effect on the economy of a place or negative effect in Athens 21 out of the 22 stadia that were built for the Olympics are now derelict mm. so it does not give a fillip to the country and I think there is a call a growing call you know you have dope cheats you have incredibly professional sports people like tennis players and golfers at the Olympics there seems to be a, a need to return it back to a sort of austerity or beginnings mm. where they said okay it's about amateur athletes mm. who devote their lives to, uh, to to excelling and it should be a celebration of that rather than this very corporate well the term that that um the review that you're referring to uses um, John Day, is, yeah. Yeah, is celebration capitalism and and, th- and that's what the olympics have become so they're a political statement and yeah it's it's celebration of of you know what we can do regardless of the damage that it does to the people you know so con- uh, places like boston and hamburg actively their citizens say no we don't no, want we them don't, because yeah. we know that we'll suffer as a consequence it's all it's all quite dark but then to bring it back to Italy, because that's that's what I'm always going to do. <laughs> but some of the words I made a note as I was reading um, Patrick's piece, and some of the things, uh, you know, you really get this this feeling that there's a similar sardonic or gallows humour at yeah. work. And so there's he gives an example of a word that has been coined, a verb, a new verb called malufar, which is derived from Paolo Malufar, who uh, is this corrupt congressman. And 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 malufar to malufar now means to siphon off public money, <laughs> to steal money. From from the people, uh, you know. So it's it's yeah that it, it's, a, it's it's part of the whole country, isn't it? It's it's really interesting. And like you said, the parallels to Italy is are, are striking. Resonant. Right from Brazil to Bloomsbury, alphabetically proximate but tonally rather different. Francesca Wade has written a beautiful essay in the paper this week, which takes as its jumping-off point an exhibition in Bath of several Bloomsbury interiors. The piece considers the contrapuntal influence of artists on their surroundings and surroundings on artists. She quotes Leonard Wolf as saying, what cuts the deepest channels in our lives are the different houses in which we live. Even better is a quote taken from Keynes's paper, The Influence of Furniture on Love, which concludes, the comfort of chairs has an important emotional effect beyond their mere comfort. Who could commit sodomy in a boudoir or sapphism in Neville's court? Who indeed. Uh, Francesca Wade joins Thea and me now. Hi, Francesca. Hello. What do you? It's a lovely piece, Francesca. Thank you for doing it. What do you think the interiors, the Bloomsbury interiors that you've seen, um, tell us about the people who lived in them? <laughs> well, I think they tell us a lot. I mean, I was particularly interested in seeing this um, exhibition, which has a lot of work in it by Vanessa Bell, and thinking a lot about the work of her sister, Virginia Woolf, because the two sisters were brought up together in this um, Victorian house at 22 Hyde Park Gate. Um, and that house really cast a shadow over over Wolf throughout her life, and she keeps returning to it in her both in her fiction and in the autobiographical writings. Um, it's really sort of takes on this this kind of symbol for her of, of this dark sort of cold place where the rooms were very sort of small and enclosed, and there were these folding doors which sort of demarcated space and um, and um, Particular, um, particularly for women, the two sisters um, felt like the top of the house was where their father would would work, and um, meanwhile they were downstairs, sort of pouring tea and 
um, when they moved to Bloomsbury after the death of their father, um, they completely sort of decided to organise the house in a different way and to, um, to paint the walls white and to put sort of colour everywhere. And that image recurs so much in Wolf's autobiographical writings and in Vanessa Bell's autobiographical writings as well. They just suddenly, they felt like there was a totally new possibility all brought about by this new kind of interior design that they'd started. So much of what you, uh, what you talk about and what the Bloomsbury's did in, in, in relation to interior design was it was about breaking down walls wasn't it between inside and outside and you think of Vanessa Bell's knack for the kind of outdoors indoors murals at, at Charleston and yeah. um, and the private and the public and the high and the low and, and and the nights that the sisters would hold in their new house that you that you also describe in in Bloomsbury where they painted the walls all white you know it was a blank canvas and they sold the family furniture which was oppressive and linked to the old days and their, their front door was bright vermilion and they did yeah. they did pretty much everything in that one room you know painting writing sleeping eating, drinking. Yeah, and talking as and well. Talking. I think that was one of the most important things that they felt like suddenly in the new surroundings there was much a, a greater possibility for open conversation and the, the house itself in the way that Wolf writes about it really becomes associated with this conversation. There's a sort of really well, ironically seminal moment in Bloomsbury where, where Lytton Strachey says the word semen in the drawing room when he's pointing at a stain on, on Vanessa Bell's dress and that sort of is has taken on such a sort of mythological status in Bloomsbury because I think Virginia writes that suddenly she felt like they could say anything and they could talk openly to each other and that's both about the actual sort of word he said but I think also it's about the place in which he said it and the drawing room you know in her novel Night and Day she talks so much about um, the drawing room being the place where the protagonist Catherine Hilbury has to kind of sit and politely listen to men talking and pour tea and sort of talk about her, her famous grandfather and so the idea that that in this new house, the drawing room was somewhere they could all just kind of be loose and chat. Was I think took on a greater significance. Was that the, the illusion of, of freedom, or was it, this actually a, a genuine moment of of breaking free from the shackles? Well, I mean, it's, an, so it's such an interesting time, and I think one of the reasons that the Bloomsbury Group is still so kind of interesting today is that they seem very modern and they were around at this time when Victorian kind of hierarchies were being broken down and the new sort of modern age was beginning and um, one quote from Wolfe I didn't actually mention in the piece because it's so often quotes quoted in everything you read about her is that in December 1910 human character changed um, and the way that she goes on to talk about um, what she sees as the sort of movement from the Victorian to the modern age she describes in terms of household arrangements she says that the sort of Victorian cook used to just sort of skulk in the cellar and not sort of talk to anyone and it was all dark um, but then in the new kind of 1910 post um, after the post-impressionist exhibition and and women sort of going for suffrage and um, all of these new freedoms were happening the house households were starting to be rearranged and servants would um, is the metaphor she used would sort of come up into the the top of the house and talk to their mistresses about hats and colors and and she described How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. 
Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It is a move from kind of dark to light and and to color. I think she very much conceived of of modernity in terms um, of houses as a metaphor that just recurs throughout her work. Would she have conceived conceived of the notion that it's it's a breakthrough, it's freedom for a servant to come up and talk about hats with their mistress? Would she have gone the stage further and said, actually not having servants at all would be a true (laughs) sense of of freedom? I mean, it's nice to talk about hats while you're uh, having a moment off from your servitude, but there's possibly a world out there that could could be accessed otherwise. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, the Bloomsbury Group never forewent servants. There was, I think, a period quite late in Virginia's life where they did quite briefly sort of lose one or two servants, but I think that was more to do with arguments than sort of idealism. But I think, I mean, the Omega workshops, which... um, started by Roger Fry to, and used uh, Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant and he um, had this kind of collective where they um, would make um, designs for interiors. His um, very important idea of that was that artists should be paid a living wage um, and kind of work communally. So I think um, there's an idea of, of community in, in the art that this exhibition in particular is showing. Uh, I'm interested in this notion, uh, Francesca, of interior design as an artistic medium. How seriously should we take it? So when we think of Bloomsbury, we think primarily of the, the literary output correctly. Yeah. How seriously should we take notions of development of interior design, development of interiors and, uh, and the furnishings? And Is that an important part of the movement, or indeed any movement, or is it something that is a little bit to one side? 
I think for for Fry in particular, it was really important. I mean, Roger Fry in 1910 curated um, the first post-impressionist exhibition, which was held at the Grafton Galleries um, in London. And it was the first time that the work of artists like Matisse and Cezanne and Van Gogh had, had come to London. And he very much thought that um, that post-impressionism was sort of a very modern art form. He said that he called the post-impressionists modern men trying to find a pictorial language appropriate to the sensibilities of the modern outlook. And the Omega workshops were really set up because he thought that post-impressionist um, ideals, the sort of spontaneity of form and emphasize um, emphasis on expression and rhythm rather than realism he thought that could really be applied to interior design and so the omega workshops was um, was set up really because he thought that artists should be um, taking a role as decorators and that um, a house kind of constructed by an artist would have a unity which it just wouldn't have if it was done by kind of an interior Decoration. And are they strikingly beautiful? I mean, did you come away from from the exhibition or um, and the things you've seen as thinking, oh, that was a genuinely aesthetic experience I've had? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think it's it's really striking all of the colours and there's I mean the the textile designs, which I mean, if you go to Charleston, for example, Charleston is the one um, kind of standing example of a Bloomsbury house. The exhibition was um, recreating other rooms which the um, the Bloomsbury artists designed, which have been destroyed but it's just a kind of amazing kind of whirl of color everywhere and and just every surface is painted and they really went in for sort of trompe kind of images on on windows and you know, win, um, doors turned into windows and um sort of these dramatic scenes of flowers sort of huge vases of flowers on the walls and it's a really kind of sensory and joyful experience i think lots of very kind of sensual figures i think i think they were particularly influenced by matisse um his sort of dancing figures um crop up all over the place and um lots of really sort of tongue-in-cheek um images like in charleston there's a, a little chest which has um an image of not leader in the swan but leader in the duck <laughs> um, and lots of acrobats everywhere it's um it's really kind of sensory and and exciting and but fun and you can kind of really get a sense of their personalities i think well i was, I was going to say the fact that all of this um all of the aesthetic comes back so neatly and so solidly to their their political vision as well and so the, the the interior design really was a sort of a living, a working out of, 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 of what it was that they wanted to achieve across yeah. different media. So I think for that very reason, they make especially salient points. Um, there are especially salient points to be made about how that relates or related to the place of women and, and to gay people, because these were yeah. spaces which were traditionally domestic spaces that, that were sort of for people whose lives would be, would be shut away, hidden inside. Yeah, and so exactly. they, they break that apart and they're basically saying, if, if we're, you know, we're going to be closeted, we're going to do it on our, on our own terms <laughs> yeah. and we're going to make it so good that all of you people outside want to come in and be a part of it. Yeah, so it was exactly. very radical. I think um, I mean, it's really interesting thinking about a room of one's own in mm. that, in which, again, the central metaphor is, um, you know, that it's important for women to be, in order to be free, um, is not only to be able to enter enter the public sphere and, you know, to go to university and take jobs and speak publicly, but, um, but also to sort of subvert and reconfigure the private mm. um, as well and to not just completely disregard the importance of the home, which has been traditionally the place where women have been confined and has been kind of a symbol of, of oppression. And she talks about the angel in the house who, who the woman writer has to 
kill the sort of ghostly spirit who's leaning over her as she tries to write a review criticizing a man and and telling her that you know she should go and make him a cup of tea instead and um, the the historian Christopher Reed has talked really interestingly about how many of the Bloomsbury group were sort of didn't quite fit into um, traditional domestic hierarchies either because of their sexuality that were, um, or just a sort of sense of kind of disenchantment perhaps with nuclear family structures and the way they tend to have um, kind of stopped people from being as free as they would like to be. Yeah, Francesca, thank you so much uh, uh, for, for joining us and thank you for, for this piece. And, it, and it, I think it's exactly right. The headline is Interior Designs, Interior Desires, which is a, a line that you use in the piece. And I think it's, a, it's such an interesting way in which a, a, a mentality w- was manifested in effectively both the homes and the designs within the homes. It's a, it's a great piece. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Francesca. I get the sense there, you're, do you regard the Bloomsbury set as, as important? Yes. As a, as a, is it? Are they at that moment in which, that modernist moment in which order starts to break down, the world starts to become modern and more interesting? Yeah, and you could almost say that, you know, you could almost say that they were already at that point, flirting with a po- an idea that then became, came into its own when we could speak about postmodernism. Because so they were, so they were knowing were they? Well, yeah. I mean, it. they they were they were so. It's ahead of its time, you know, it's such a, a trite thing to say, but it really did have that, that feel to it. I think it, when you look at someone like Virginia Woolf, who was very much at the at the heart of, of, of the square, you remember how she was so intent on blowing apart these boundaries and so the high and the low of culture. And interesting I, that she still had service. I did think that is interesting. because you, Oh, you, yeah, you, you and talk so about, much has been written about, about that, you know, how, how she couldn't go that one step further and her attitudes to... But she could welcome break uh, equality of sexes and obviously, obviously equality of sexes, but also of sexuality. Mm-hmm. There was a sense of freedom there, but that's probably a lingering... That shows you how sort of a culture can linger, a, a mm. sort of a system. You can't imagine a world without mm. that existing hierarchy. Mm. And I think there was the, they were also, you know, drawn to the romanticism that had come before them. So they were being sort of pushed and pulled in both directions at the same time. But I, I also think it's just, it's, it's so apt how when we think of the Bloomsbury set, we think of them in Bloomsbury Square, we think of them in this square shape, almost as though they are in a room contained, you know, contained yeah, space in, in the great old house of, of literature. I just, yeah, I mean, it's... But the I'm, point of this is that they were I'm subver- a sucker for Bloomsbury. <laughs> but they were subverting it within that. So yeah, within the house, exactly. within that square, they were doing interesting things. Exactly. You're a sucker for Bloomsbury. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Quote me. Yeah. yeah, it was. It's such an interesting piece. I'm so. I'm so glad that we have it. Yeah, it's lovely. Okay, from show-offs, which I do think I've said that I've written that it is unfair. We weren't really saying they're show-offs, so were we? Theatre interior design <laughs> as show-offs. But anyway, we're going to move on from Bloomsbury to a slacker figure, or is he the English writer Jeff Dyer, who now lives in the United States of America? Is he actually the laid-back? almost dozy figure caricatured by some critics and indeed caricatured by himself. Not according to Toby Lichtig, who has reviewed his latest collection of recent journalism and fiction, White Sands. He is a prolific writer. That is Dyer, not Lichtig, although, Toby, you are, of course, prolific also. (laughs) Uh, Dyer has 15 books to his name, books in which he often wears his considerable learning lightly and wittily. Toby is here in the studio with Thea and me. It seems like a great book, White Sands, Toby. Which is more on show, the sort of the fiction, the wry fiction writer or the wry journalist? I think probably in this one, the wry journalist. I mean, it's there's a little bit of fiction there, and there's a, there's one supposedly short story, but this is very much loose 
Jeff wandering around the planet, going from one press junket to another and uh, sort of drawing on his own life and musing on his own reading habits rather than the, the Jeff Dyer of uh, Paris Trance or Jeff and Venice, Death and Varanasi, which, which, which are very much novels. So yes, this is Dyer in, in travel writer mode. Do you think he is faithful to the truth or does he require himself to be faithful to what's surrounding him or is he are there bits which he's clearly fictionalizing i, I think dyer's only faithful to things that interest him <laughs> so um i mean he he makes no bones about sort of his his desire to splice bits of life with fiction and criticism and actually the criticism element is one thing that, that interests me because you know we have Many people who write li- lightly fictionalised memoir or or draw on their own writing uh, to write fiction, but Dyer does it with criticism as well, um, which I think is interesting. So, you know, he'll write about Susan Sontag or John Berger very much as an academic does, and then suddenly he writes about himself and talks about wandering around and what it feels like to be reading Susan Sontag, which I think is That's interesting. an interesting approach. Some, someone in the TLS actually once described Dyer's criticism as less criticism than interpretive performance, which I think is quite a nice <laughs> way of putting nice. it. And when he's talking about his travel, he's talking about actually almost the world of the writer going to junkets. And, exactly. So it's, it, it's kind of almost... Is, is navel-gazing a critical way of putting it? or is it? Is... I think it's fair enough, and, and uh, there is a bit of navel-gazing. I find him quite charming as a writer, so I think he basically gets away with it. Um, it, it his writing is imbued with disappointment, and it's the disappointment of a lucky journalist who's seen everything and hasn't really had to make much effort to be transported around the world. And in the wrong hands, that could come across very badly. And how does he get away with it? I think because he's funny and he's self-critical and there's a line he writes in White Sands about how, you know, as a writer, I always make sure that I come out worst, um, you know, worse than any of my characters. And I think that is true. He, 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 He makes us laugh at him. So when he's being spoilt and moany, we sort of sympath. We somehow, even more, we somehow empathise with him because we've all been on those holidays where we thought we were going to escape from everything, and it turns out uh, that we transported ourselves with us. Mm. Away. He very much wants us to like him. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And it, he's not to everyone's taste. I mean, some people find that desire to be liked in his writing irritating, and you know, his 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 jokiness can can sometimes seem a bit frivolous. And it can be arch, can't it? I mean, I mean, I think I almost spend my whole time objecting to self consciousness in. Fiction. <laughs> particularly because I think it is one of the great curses of the age but when it's worn lightly it, it can be knowing but when it's done badly it feels arch oh I completely it? agree and but, uh, but it is worn lightly and he is also he is a very good critic so he writes very interestingly about Heidegger he writes very interestingly about Adorno he knows his stuff there's a there's a sort of slight self-conscious um I don't know almost slightly undergraduate desire to not you know, not to assume too much knowledge. Um, you know, he doesn't want he doesn't want to show off too much. But he he is he is a very very sharp critic, and it comes out very well. Where does it go between travel writing and criticism? I understand it's not fiction. But well, I mean, how does it go? But does, he, it, does it touch on criticism? Because he goes to does it, he go to Adorno's? It does. House? Yeah, yeah. He go he goes to Adorno's house. This is sort of it's a very diaresque failed pilgrimage where he sort mm. of tries to rock up at Adorno's house, and and you know, there's a bit of a disaster on the way, and then he turns up, and the person who's living in Adorno's house barely knows who Adorno is, and he suddenly you know dies suddenly realises, what the hell am I doing here? Um, you know, what, what am I going to learn about Adorno by turning up at this house that he once used to live in? But he does use that as a, as a springboard to actually muse on the things Adorno is interested in. And I think that's... But here's the question. There's a distinction, isn't there, between going off to see Adorno and it turning into a disappointment and writing about it to almost knowingly 
having a disappointing experience with Adorno and knowing that you're going to write wittily and dryly and self-deprecatingly about it. And the former is kind of real and the latter is very constructed. And yeah. Is he the former or is he the latter? I think it's, it's quite difficult to disentangle them. I think probably actually the latter because also many of these essays, I mean, it, it, he claims it's a cohesive collection. It isn't. It's a disparate collection of his journalism. And a lot of these pieces came out of commissions for some of the publications he writes for and they're slightly reversioned essays or reversioned examples of them. So I think there is a kind of knowingness. And he, when he's setting out to do these things, he's aware of what's going to happen. But I think that kind of lends a, I don't know, it gives him space to to write about what he wants to write about. Yeah. Well, I think I think that's also why the fiction journalism kind of overlap is such a fruitful one because it's to do with, you know, Dyer sort of wanders in the space in between the two. So it's to do with like the the story that is promised, the aura, I suppose you could call it, which is a created thing around. Uh, any given thing, be it Adorno's house or Gauguin or whatever. So that's the kind of the fictional element, which then it is the journalist's job to go and investigate and, and, and dis- dispel the myth of. Exactly. But he then still leaves, uh, as, a, as a fiction writer, he leaves kind of loose endings. Yeah. And actually the, the, the aura is, a, is an interesting concept as well, and I've, I've tried to write about it in my piece, this sort of this idea that any artwork, and you know, that includes a piece of fiction that Dyer might be writing, has a sort of takes on a life of its own. The, the end product is actually the beginning of of any journey of an artwork you know you can finish a painting but it's it's the what happens to it after hundreds of years of people seeing that painting that that is the most interesting thing which gives an agency to the audience to the reader and involves them in the work yeah exactly which is again why someone like jeff dyer can be so engaging to read because you're 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 drawn into it and you know that you're playing a yeah you're complicit yeah you're complicit exactly and so where does he end up then in in the pantheon of, of people who are writing at the moment. I mean, what, what, when you look back on his career thus far, you say it's 15 books, so for someone who is called by everyone a slacker, and you quote uh, very funnily, Andrew Motion, he's an admirable slacker, Luke Browns, he's a fastidious slacker, <laughs> Stephen G. Coleman, a consummate slacker, slacker prince, slacker intellectual, the must slacker be laureate. Cards. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so although and he, he doesn't even like this term, slacker, apparently he prefers to be called a skyver. A skyver. <laughs> but he's obviously not a skyver, because he's, in, not he's churning it out. So, mm. But I'm kind of interested in, in 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 him as a figure that the name's very familiar and and people will have read parts of him but he's written a lot i imagine not many people have read all of his 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 work where, where is he in the moment in, in the world of letters i mean how significant a force is he i think he's significant he's not susan sontag and he's not john berger and he's not you know his literary heroes and i don't think he would assume to be i think he's an extremely witty and sharp journalist slash critic slash writer who I think will last. I think he'll be read, you know, in 10, 20, 30, 40 years' time. You know, he's not one of the greats, but I find him hugely enjoyable. But perhaps he won't be known as a novelist, because he he almost has that mentality of a a person. He he can do so many things very well. Mm -hmm. I wonder whether he'll... Would he want to be known as a novelist versus a critic or a a sort of travel writer? An essayist. I think probably an essayist. Although, actually, one of his out-and-out novels, Jeff and Venice, although... Jeff and Venice, Death in Varanasi, although it's very much the kind of journalist character in it, it is very much a novel. I think it's one of his best books. I think it's an excellent novel. So I think he does stand up as a novelist in his 
name right. But yes, I think Thea's right. I think an essayist is probably how he. And I think when it when it comes to him as an essayist, I think that's probably there's a lot that has a lot to do with why he is so warmly received in America because it's part of that sensibility that at the moment really seems to have currency there, which is the kind of work that someone like Leslie Jameson does, which is to you know take a detail from everyday life, a seemingly banal detail, and excavate. And he he loves those essayists, Annie Dillard. There's 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 a quote from her in the epigraph to White Sands. He he he's very kind of in love with that tradition. We should get him writing for the TLS. Uh, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> so if you listen, end up listening to this podcast, we are going to try again. But yeah. it's, it, is it because the yeah, American essay is very live and well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it probably should come over here more. Yeah. You know, we're living in yeah. an era of long reads. No, and... no, no, completely. It's 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 what people want, and it, you know, I think. Uh, it's one of the things that we do well and the MLB do well and the LRB do well. Those long reads that you're not necessarily just flicking through on your laptop or whatever. There's something that you're spending time with and exactly. you're involved in and, exactly. and, and there's, there's something to. at stake, yeah. Well, it's a lovely piece, Toby, and it does make you want to go and, and read more Jeff Dyer. I was looking at his website. He wrote his, his last book was about when he went on a, a boat. <laughs> he, he was on, he was on S, what's it called, the uh, the American ship George W. Bush. Yeah, he spent, he spent yeah. two weeks as their kind of on-ship on correspondent, yeah, hanging out with uh, a bunch of very religious sailors. And if that doesn't make this, you... This thing of writers on boats from David Foster Wallace yeah. to Jonathan Franzen yeah, yeah, to just exactly. put a writer on a boat. Yeah. <laughs> watch let, let them go. Now, that should be an occasional <laughs> series in the TLS, writers on boats. I'm pro that. Okay, well, Toby, thank you very much indeed. Uh, that is almost all we have time for this week. Thanks to Thea and to Toby, to Patrick Wilkin and to Francesca Wade. Please do subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts from. We will be back every week. Although I will not be back next week, Thea. You're going to be doing this with Toby. Yep, yep, yep. So I will listen to that from my holiday. Uh, But we are back generally every week with uh, highlights from the TLS and discussions on cultural subjects. This week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we have discussed today, plus... John Day on the ropey history of the Olympic Games, Rowan Mateson on the writing of Victorian women, Emma Smith on John Kerrigan's book on Shakespeare, which she says is the first major scholarly achievement of Shakespeare's anniversary year, Callie Hammond on the crisis in the Church of England, Mark Roseman on the Holocaust, Michael Holroyd on a surprising influence on Rudyard Kipling, John Stokes on three plays by Chekhov and Paul Griffiths on a new novel by Jack Cox. You can visit our website, the-tls.co.uk, to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions and follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at the TLS. Before we go, here is Rachel Hadass reading one of her poems, Raw Jute, published in this week's edition of the TLS. Raw Jute by Rachel Hadass. Ibrahim Mahama, Accra, March 6th, 2016. I have changed the space with what I've done. From nothing I made something happen there. Ibrahim, a soft-spoken young man, answered a question. It was asked again. Possibilities hung in the air. The bridge was still a bridge when he was done, but strangely draped. The struggle must go on. Our silent past has left a throbbing scar my work wraps up, continued the young man. Nothing can be understood alone. What's close recedes, what's distant now looks near. Dorm, railway station, theater. What I've done is hang a roof with sackcloth, underline the mystery hidden in a public square by hiring women from around the town to stitch old sacks together. One by one, these form a garment that a space can wear. 
buildings breathe because of what I've done. We look more closely when things disappear. Colonial leavings, cocoa, charcoal, corn, sift down miasmic. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Through solid structures, what deep tremors run, map of a struggle won and lost and won. A few days later, this brown shroud is gone, a dream you wake from. Had it ever been? Tell me, Ibrahim said, what I've done. Explain what my mysterious mantles mean. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.